Welcome. This is an interview conducted by TISA in conjunction with the Elephant issue of informal trade, especially during this the COVID pandemic. I'll try and do an introduction because you were kind enough to share your very illustrious bios. Dr. Miriam Omolo is the Executive Director at the African Policy Research Institute, APRI. You have over 15 years of experience in international trade and development and poverty issues. You're also lecturer with the Strathmore University Business School. I'd also like to welcome Charles Waria, the Chief Operations and Learning Officer at iGov Africa. Charles is a development economist and results expert with extensive experience and expertise in public sector and private sector in Africa. And he also has very broad experience in civil society performance management. He has extensive experience in market system analysis and value chain transformation. Karibu Nisana. So Karibu, maybe we'll start with you. What yeah. do you view as the biggest challenge that government government is facing with uh, the COVID outbreak? I'll look at it from uh, several angles. From the consumption angle, are households going to be food secure or food insecure? That's the first thing because people are not working and uh, people have to eat. So there's a challenge of food security. That's at the consumption level. At the production or farm level, are businesses in operation? And if they are not in operation or depending on the percentage in operation, we've seen the essential services. What happens to what we consider non-essential? And with what is considered non-essential, they are not in operation. How is government going to collect tax? So that is very important. All right. Thank so you. So they are having like uh, three issues. We've not talked about health as well. The risk of a sick nation. So if you mix all this together, all because of COVID-19, we need to really strategize from a multifaceted approach. All right. Does APRI have a particular response to COVID or, you know, what, what initiatives might you be taking? You could tell us uh, briefly. Currently, Currently, the initiatives we are taking, which is taking a bit of time, is generating information. And the information we are generating is data-driven to help in uh, establishing how can the government act. Like right now, the initiatives we are taking because we are on the intellectual side and on the thinking side is who are the vulnerable. And even with the the health data we are having, is there a risk that uh, the statistics we are seeing can worsen? So those are some of the questions we are asking. We are also trying to establish how the sectors are linked in the country so that we see with the priority sectors, if they are open, how can we work with them in such a way that we gain? Because currently, sexual linkages remain weak. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Charles, um, Pia. Uh, just as an icebreaker, you can also tell us your, your views in terms of COVID and what, what are the key challenges uh, you, you see us facing government and, and what, which of those is, uh, are you dealing with in your work? Right. Um, I think the COVID-19 uh, <coughs> came uh, at a time more like a wake-up call, really. Um, because governments, especially the Kenya government, has performed dismally in uh, emergency response. Uh, in, in, in spite of the fact that the country has had uh, numerous, um, numerous epidemics in the, in the past, in terms of uh, you know, disasters and all, um, this particular one should have found the country more prepared but there has been uh, years and years of malpractice, um, unpreparedness, disjointed efforts, uh, uncoordinated efforts, even in the smallest of emergencies. For example, even if there's a landslide, there's, there's never a coordinated government response to deal with, with, with the populations that are affected from a landslide. If a building collapses, you see how they scramble left, right, and center. You know, trying to save lives, you know, in a kind of, so, so in spite of the fact that this um, national agency for, for, for disaster management and all, this, 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 this has, has, has revealed the lack of preparedness by Kenya government in as far as handling uh, emergency situations is concerned. Um, secondly, we also see how the government of Kenya has not had a proper 
coordinated mechanism to deal with the vulnerable populations. So, so right now it's a bit of a helter skelter, you know, is wake up and, and announce this uh, social distancing thing, wake up and announce work from home. They have no statistics on how many Kenyans actually can work from home and have jobs that allow them to work from home. Uh, over 80% of Kenyans who say they work actually work from outside the home. So, so that working from home is, is a facade. You know, uh, if, if somebody runs a salon, you can't run a salon from your house. If you're a hawker, you can't hawk things from your house. You know, if you're mamamboga, you can't sell vegetables from your house. So almost 80% of Kenyans who engage in some, some form of income generation do not work from home. But it shows you how disconnected the Kenya government is from the population. You know, so that they, and, and that's feeding into this lack of responsiveness because they do not know which cohorts are most affected, which are the strategies that work for those cohorts, uh, where are they, how many are they, what are the, the clusters, and that kind of thing. So they don't have all that. So it's, it's keeping people uh, screwed to the TV every more, every day, and come and tell us there's nine, nine new infections, and that's it. You know, uh, you wake up and you say, we have banned all food distributions, it's only through coordinated uh, government efforts. Another TS wakes up and says 50% of it is being stolen, you know, by same government people. You wake up and say, so what's the strategy? How do we support most vulnerable households? And there's none. So Charles, you're taking us to where the, the crux of our question. Did you want to share with us um, your work and how you may be contributing to the COVID response in, in the capacity, in your capacity? Yes, so um, as IAGAP Africa, we are, we are a tech firm, and what we're doing now is we are partnering with the funders like David. Uh, we also, we're also managing um, a program called the Kenya Catalytic Jobs Fund, which is basically meant to provide um, funds to SMEs that are innovative and entrepreneurial. Now, um, COVID hit us right in the middle. So we've had to quickly adapt a new strategy, uh, pull together some funds, about 400,000 or so pounds, to redirect it towards SMEs that have innovations that respond to COVID. So, so, so we're looking um, in the next couple of uh, days or probably up to by next week, we're gonna start rolling out this fund to SMEs that have, have quickly reorganized their operations to find something that they can do that is innovative, that would contribute towards mitigating the effect of COVID, not just in the health sector, but in other sectors. So for example, looking at what is the emerging food, food crisis, do they have some innovation around quickly addressing the food crisis, you know, and all that. Uh, things like M Safari, and you know, how then do you use new technologies to not just mitigate uh, COVID, but also mitigate other other diseases? And also, we're looking to to by the next week or so roll out this new fund, emergency fund. Okay, wonderful. So, um, you know, just straight into it. Um, of course, we've got a large informal uh, sector. Um, government estimates give us, you know, 83% 83, um, 83 of, of Kenyans working in the informal sector. Um, to, and I think, Charles, you've already alluded to this, and, and, and Miriam has also mentioned the risks. To what extent is government speaking to this critical sector um, when they talk about the COVID response? And, and what are the likely impacts this sector is having um, from the COVID uh, outbreak and response? Um, and, and we can start with, uh, with you, Charles, since you had the chair. And then we'll come <laughs> over to you, Miriam. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, I think one of the problems really with the government responses all across the world is they tend to be a bit elitist uh, because governments are run by elites. 
And so by that very nature, they, they're not properly plugged into and connected to with the, with the masses, you know. Um, we have not seen mechanisms where the executive is conversing with industry, conversing with uh, representatives on the ground, for example, MCAs and, 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 the, and the village elders and, and the, you know, CBO people and all. People who have the pulse on the population have been completely sidelined from, this, from these strategies. You know, and then you have a few boardroom uh, meetings at the executive level to come up with, with things they imagine should be happening, but are not uh, pegged on proper strategies, you know? So, so you, 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 you wake up and you look forward to listening to the address for the day to find something tangible. For example, do they even have the statistics of the number of informal businesses in this country, uh, how are they coordinating with counties to, you don't see counties brought in to say, look, in my county, I have 1 million small businesses registered and unregistered. Um, here's, here's how they have been affected by this. Um, here's where they are. We have, we have mapped out their locations. We know who they are. We know their associations. We know how uh, their incomes are reduced. The, those, those conversations are not there. Uh, and then you hear all oh, this uh, couple of billions have been set aside, but you're not sharing the strategy of what is the database on channeling these billions? What are the structures in place? You know, how will we track who gets and who doesn't get, you know, um, and where they are and what they do with the money? Um, on the one hand, they, the, the government will come out and say, oh, we're going to set aside money to do certain things. But on the other hand, how are you opening up businesses? So how, how are you opening up the streets, uh, even passion? For, for those um, uh, traders who are affected, who may receive this kind of support to go back and trade, you know, how are counties who close to markets opening up markets, you know, even passion, you know, what are the, what are the strategies in place to get the economy to begin to function um, from a, a restricted point of view, even as we think about, you know, um, how, how to, to roll out uh, more efforts. But the biggest thing really is, the, the elitist approach that has been taken that, that doesn't seem to resonate, doesn't seem to resonate at all with the needs of the masses, you know, every day, um, those who are not able to sell their wares anymore because they're required to stay some meters apart from, your, from, your, from the next person. So you can't do, you can't do your trade. Um, I speak to many people in the informal sector who have closed shop uh, some of them actually feel victimized. For example, I, I spoke to a couple of salon owners and they said, look, how can they say salons are, are points of spreading this thing? How, do we, how are we spreading this thing? Because they do not know how their salons are spreading. You know, and because of that, their clients have now been scared. So clients are not coming to the salons anymore. Uh, landlords are looking for rent. The salon owners uh, can't pay their own house rent, they can't pay the, the rent for the salon. Uh, everybody's panicking. People are now saying, look, what is the way forward? What do we do? You know, right, and right, right. You know, Miriam, um, to bring you in, um, of course, we are, uh, you opened up by uh, enumerating the, the yeah. impacts uh, yeah. you know, in terms of food security, um, in terms of revenues. Um, when you look at the informal trade, um, yeah. what do you think are the direct impacts on them? And then there's the question that uh, you raised and Charles has also raised about lack of data. We seem to be doing a lot of guesstimates. Okay. Um, you know, so, you know, you know, in terms of impact, do you think government is getting it right? Uh, do you think there's data they should be using? Is there a lack of data? And, and you know, what's... Really, if it, what, what would you say the government response is at present, in your view, if you were to say uh, how well let it's me, going? Let me build from what Charles has been saying. Because uh, we are talking about informal traders or the small-scale traders in the informal sector. And you've mentioned rightly that uh, 
they are representing around 83% of employment. But we cannot define them. So how can we even establish impact? We can only tell their characteristics. And I'll just pick out a few. They are made of young and old people who either were previously employed or left employment or were not successful in getting employment. And then they moved into their own businesses to become their own bosses so that they can become flexible as well in terms of uh, balancing family income generation, depending on someone's priorities. They tend to be micro small, very limited in potential for growth. So when they need to expand, they are limited because they cannot access credit due to lack of collateral. That's a second characteristic. So you find even registering becomes a problem because they don't get profits all the time. Sustainability is an issue. Uh, because of uh, also inability to register, these same institutions don't adhere to the tax requirements. You find most of them don't pay licenses, but the market traders pay market fees. So they are neither here nor there. So back to your question, what is the government doing? Government has talked of SMEs. Uh, there's already some uh, data on micro and small enterprise, which we are already analyzing. And uh, once we have the results, we are going to share them. But how about the informal small-scale traders? Are they defined here? Remember, they're not in the tax bracket. So where will government know them? Most of them are organized through associations. And therefore, adding to what Charles said, if you go to CBOs, if you go to MCAs, you will get the pulse of these organizations. Or if you've interacted with them at project level, so the data is anecdotal. But we are making decisions about them. I don't know whether we are really making decisions about them. How will you make decisions if you don't, yes. if you haven't really defined them? Of course, there's a historical yes. issue. Um, yes. You know, so is it elitism? Is it a, really a, a, genuinely, a genuine, genuinely difficult problem? Uh, are, are there a sector that government prefers to ignore? Is it a combination? But how will government make decisions if they don't have the data? And it's if they mixture. don't know who these associations are? It is a mixture. There's the latest component because decisions are made in the boardrooms. These people are not in the boardrooms. They are in the markets. They are the people you see selling outside the market. The people you see by the roadside. The small kibanda you see next to Amjengo. The small salons you see with three chairs, but people are always there and it's always full. So the elitist part is because the vision has not been made to look for them, but are also a mixture of issues because even the informal sector are not able to pay any taxes for reasons known. One, first of all, your income cannot even sustain you. So how do you pay for licenses which you don't even have guaranteed return? So you find there are many factors at play, but I believe this sector can be very well defined. And uh, a good starting point where there are a lot of associations, the Kenya National Chamber of Commerce, KNCCI, I know there are quite a number of networks that are already registered there. If you go to the counties and even the markets themselves, there are a number of associations uh, that are there. These people are organized. In that informality, they are quite organized. There is also a lot of mistrust because previous studies that we've done in Nairobi County, you find that uh, they say that uh, they pay taxes, but the taxes, they don't see services. They pay market fees. They don't see services, garbage collection. But they are the first ones to be closed that they are unhealthy, but they pay licenses or they pay fees, but they don't get services in return. So I think what I hear, hear you and Charles saying is one of the first things government has to do is find ways to talk to 
to the, to the traders, to the informal traders, through the associations. Um, and I think that brings up another issue in terms of government response. Um, and I'll ask it in two, two regards. Go government has already instituted several you know, tax, tax measures and the like. Um, to what extent have the measures, uh, reduction of turnover tax, reduction of VAT, um, removal of mobile phone fees by Safaricom and, and things like that, to what extent have the measures that uh, government has talked about been beneficial to informal traders? And then how will government, how should government order its response? Um, because you're talking about informal traders scattered maybe through urban er through various urban urban areas. Um, yeah. You've also got then in um, rural areas. Uh, you've also got there in informal sector because uh, again, people working in the agricultural small scale uh, farmers again are are um, spread spread out. Maybe just organized at at. Um, uh, Chama or some other some other level. So on one hand, is has gov have government measures yet responded to this sector? And then how will how should government reach these uh, people who are not organised? And and it, could that be why government then works with uh, what it can see? So those are two questions. And we'll yeah. start with you, Miriam. You have the floor, so that we go back to Charles. We balance. <laughs> Um, the first thing, uh, if you look at this, uh, I don't know whether to call it, it was a law or a memo, the, the COVID response fund, where they had outlined uh, some of this reduction of turnover tax from 3 to 1%. And at the same time, the reduction of VAT and removal of mobile phone fees. Take example of a salon. Let's take example of a salon. Are they bound to pay the one? Are they bound to pay the turnover tax? That is the first question. So that were they paying it, that now they're moving, they'll have more income by paying one percent. Were they paying it in the beginning? Because as it is, that turnover tax, even its administration, is a problem. Historically, it was there; it was removed. Now it's been brought back. So on paper, it will look good that they've reduced it, but were they paying it in the first place? So they've not yet been assisted. That's the first thing. They've not yet been assisted, that's the first thing. And then secondly, there's 13 billion being paid to SMEs. We've not defined them. So you'll find most of the SMEs that we gain are already within the tax payroll of Kenya Revenue, can I say? Are these people in that uh, group that can get, that can say, I am an SME employing five people, employing two people? No. So the answer, if you go by that checklist, the answer is no, no. And even VAT, we've been told VAT is coming from 16 to 14%. Have they been paying VAT on what? On the goods or on the services? So it will look good. Eh? But now when you go to the ground, things are different on the ground. I don't think these people are gaining, but these are 83% of the employees of this nation. So my answer would be no, they are not gaining. They're not gaining from the measures. Um, and, and, and the question I had going with that is what should the government response then look like? You know, what, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think the response should look like it's, uh, let me put it in a, very, in a way that will not answer you, but answer you. In a way that's catering for the informal sector. The first thing, do we know them? So we are going back to where we started. Do we know them? We don't know them. So they, sh they should start looking for them. In this case, we are talking about looking for, at least the good thing is that we are looking for the needles in the haystack. We are not looking for the haystack. Yeah, because if you're looking for the haystack, then you look for the needle, it's a lot of work. 
but we know the haystack. So now let's look for the needles in the haystack. It can be done. Yes. So for me, the first thing would be identify them. They can be identified. But secondly, build trust. You will not identify them if you don't, there's no trust between the two parties. So building trust means building dialogue, creating dialogue frameworks. Uh, it could start at the county level because again, if you're looking at informal sector and the functions of the counties, it starts from the counties because it's a devolved function, I can say. Trade, yes. So in uh, the internal trade in this case, especially where we are talking about counties, trade and markets. So start that dialogue and identify them, but it has to be done quickly. Right, yes. Uh, Charles, do you have any input into that? Um, yes, yes. Um, as as Miriam rightly puts it, uh, uh, this, uh, turnover tax shouldn't have been there in the first place. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it's a game that government through KRA has been playing. They tried to play it a couple of years back. It didn't work. And because of it, they introduced the presumptive tax. Now, in these COVID measures, they did not mention presumptive tax. And yet, Presumptive tax is where they collect mandatory tax, 15% of the, the, the value of your annual permit from every small business, you know. Uh, and the catch is, before you get your business permit renewed, you, you, you show a receipt that you have already paid 15% presumptive tax, you know. Uh, and counties are required to enforce it. So if you go to the smallest of the county office, they will not renew your smallest of business permits uh, unless you show proof that you have paid presumptive tax. So government was clever that they were going to catch everybody who runs a small business who, who requires a permit. Now, they, so which means that uh, if you're going to renew your permit, even in, in the times of COVID, you still have to pay that tax. Now, turnover tax failed because there was no mechanism of getting the turnover value from small businesses. Businesses barely keep inventories. They barely use ETR receipts. So there's no way you can accurately compute what they sold in the year and therefore calculate turnover, turnover tax on it. So whether you reduce it to 1% or you reduce it to 0.1%, it doesn't matter because you had no mechanism of collecting it in the first place. And that's why they, they, they introduced presumptive tax. Now, having said that, and you link it back to, to VAT, an argument has been made, rightly so, that businesses pay tax when they trade. If the business ecosystem is closed, whether you reduce it, whether you increase it, you're not going to get the tax because they didn't trade. You know, so you, you calculate it based on the amount they, they, they bought and sold. Whether you reduce VAT from 14, 16 to 14, you will have to compute it on what we sold. If our shops were closed, restaurants have been closed for a while, many businesses are closed for a while. So automatically, that uh, revenue is going to go down. Even for government, they know it, where they sit, they know that in this period of COVID, uh, the decisions they made have and will lead to massive loss of government revenue. They know that, and I'm sure, I hope they're preparing for it because there's a huge slump. As a matter of fact, when the COVID-19 broke out, Central Bank released a circular and said that the economy the economic development growth was going to go down from 6.2 to around 3.4. So already the CBK predicted a slump, you know, um, and, and therefore it, 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 would, it, would, it would imagine that instead of dilly-dallying, you put in place measures to cushion, a, protect the population, but cushion trade so that trade continues, you know, as you protect population. So you can even, I mean, simple, uh, 
uh, uh, ideas that do not require any any ingenious. For example, tell people wear a mask, wear a glove, and go about your business. You know, protect yourself, protect your customer, and go about your business. Charles, you, you know? sound like you're taking the Magufuli line or Swedish line that business needs to continue. Um, you know, because on one hand, you, you sound like you're saying that. I don't know if that's what you're saying. Uh, government has a kind of partial, I don't know if, if we have a, a full uh, shutdown because we've been asked to stay home, but um, yeah. it's understood that some businesses still have to continue. So are you arguing that government should open up or, or what? And then the other thing is um, drawing on, on what you're saying, um, on, on the argument, what are you recommending should be done around the payment of VAT? Uh, should there be an exemption? We know government is broke, it has no revenue. How will it then cushion? So, so there's a quandary, uh, yeah. a lot of it fueled by coming into this with empty coffers and high debt. But now that we are here, what are you saying? Do people go back to work? Do they stay home? Do we scrap VAT, suspend VAT? Uh, and then how do we cushion? Hard question. Now, um, yeah. mm -hmm. yes, yes. Um, so uh, ordinarily, let me, let, me, let me go back a step. Every prediction is saying that the economic impact of COVID is going to far outweigh the health impact of COVID. Now, nobody is, seems to be having a clue on how to then respond to that prediction. You know, that, that every sector is going to be hit so badly, hit so badly. I mean, take, take, take a look. How much is KQ losing every day by aer aeroplanes not being in the air? Now, we're not saying open up the airspace. No, we're not saying open up the airspace. But we think, we're saying, how are we rethinking our economic activities, you know, to, to, to emerge out of this situation not dead? Because we're going to either 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 way, it's going to hit badly. Um, and then and then beginning to ask. So, COVID because COVID is already here. How do we work with it to then keep the economy running? You know, how do how do you, for example, what they're doing now with restaurants and saying, look, you can reopen under certain conditions. Now that's a good move. They should have thought about it earlier. You know because people have been staying home and jobless. Hotels have closed, you know, and that kind of thing. So how, how can we then uh, open up these other sectors to scrutiny and say, what are the measures that we need to put in place that will protect the populations, but keep these sectors up and running? Uh, in the near future, in the next few weeks, Kenya is going to face massive food crisis. You know, it's already happening in certain, certain food outlets. Uh, because because of the disruptions in food production and, and trade, you know, and all that. So so they're not saying, but you you watch this space. In the next one or two weeks, there's going to be a food crisis because because of this. Now that 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 wasn't addressed. Now in terms of taxes, therefore, um, because again uh, we don't want the government to wake up and say now we have no revenue, and therefore there cannot be medicine in schools. Teachers can't be paid. Uh, these guys can't be paid, uh, police can't be paid because there was no revenue because of COVID. So again, is looking back and saying, not every, not every sector is shut down. So there are certain sectors that are operating. Uh, can they pay what they can pay? The sectors that are, that are worst hit, what are the, the, the measures that can be put in place to cushion them, you know, yeah, to allow was, them to get to get, yes. If, if I was to now bring... So you're saying that government needs to be a bit more pragmatic, open up a little bit more. Um, there's a big fear that informal sector, uh, the ability to comply is limited due to the conditions under which informal sector trades. So if restaurants open up, you're talking about um, formal restaurants, you of course, casuals then go back to work. That's a good thing. Um, and you, you know, open up a few more jobs, but what about the informal sector? Hawkers have been uh, taken off the streets. Uh, food, uh, street, street um, food, of course, off the streets. Markets are open. Um, markets can't cater for every, um, all the, the population. So 
how practical is that for the informal trade? So we may open up partially, but still have informal traders sitting at home. And that's where government must come in, uh, in terms of seeking endogenous solutions. Uh, problem with some of these governments is that they imagine that citizens don't know, you know. But if you, if, you, if you put out a call today and ask citizens, in fact, even the hawkers, how can you best do your trade while protecting yourself and your customers? You'll be amazed. I'll, in the next few minutes, they'll give you brilliant ideas because they have been thinking about it. They are hard hit. Their shoe is pinching them. You know, all they need is someone to seek their opinion on how can you do your business while protecting your customer and the person next to you. And they'll, they'll come up with these ideas. So you're saying it's back to public participation. It's back to dialogue, like uh, Miriam was saying. So Miriam, um, what's your view on this? And, and then next we'll move to the issue of food security. Uh, talking about uh, how do we go about it and picking from where Charles is saying, because uh, looking at it, take example, the salons, okay? Uh, they were the first ones to be closed. Why were they closed? Because they assumed a lot of contact. But this is a place where it has all the shampoos, it has all the soaps, it has all the hygiene you want. So you are in contact with someone who is always washing, always having soap. So it's a bit too late. Already the measures in place by government are good, like uh, the health ones, social distancing, wash your hands, and uh, stay at home. But we realize when we stay at home, we'll be hungry. So if you go to these uh, informal uh, sectors and ask them, how best can we cope? Go to the barbers. These are the people who will innovate because they don't work. They'll be hungry. You've seen pictures of markets where they are practicing social distancing in the markets. Um, I've seen it outside. I think I've seen it in uh, Rwanda. We can do it with our market, but it brings in the element of planning. We go back to our planning and budgeting. Does the government ever put in sufficient funds for markets, market development? This is now county government. The answer is no. So we can have immediate solutions. The first thing, how can they cope as businesses? Of course, there are those ones who will do funny things. But again, this goes back to research. I'm more inclined to research and in the health sector. Why is it that there was an expectation that there would be a lot of rampant spread uh, of this disease in most African countries? And in Kenya, it was estimated that by end of April, we would have 10,000. The last uh, speech of the president, we had 343 cases. They are talked of 10,000 cases. So why isn't this spreading? Is it that we have an immunity? So while we're making these decisions, it has to be tampered with research, not fear, because there's a lot of fear peddling and fear mongering. Maybe we had it and we survived it. And you can look at the success rates, the recovery rates. So research at the national level must go on in the health sector, whether it's Cambry or Ministry of Health, that has to happen concurrently. Because so, you can't say that the health sector does not work in isolation. So, so as we are thinking about, you know, governments working on their supplementary budgets, these are some yes. of the areas it needs to put money. Not, not firing yeah. the, the lead scientist and, and, and not funding Kemri because up to the, the recording of this interview from uh, the reports we are getting in media, Kemri has not yet received any additional support for um, COVID, COVID response. Before you even look at the support that Kemri has, is yet to receive, look at the trends, funding in Kemri for the last 10 years, the funding mix, government and external, then you get your answer. The gold owner sets the rules. We have to set the rules on COVID for ourselves. We have to put money. So funding in that sector is very important because we are losing scientists and very good scientists who have had to leave 
on camera funding alone, you find they cannot survive. So we have so a brain drain. Yes, there is a brain drain and funding in the health sector should really be key. Because right now, I'm sure you've also done analytical work on uh, health sector funding. And you'll find that that data is now very much disaggregated because health is a county government function. Policy is national government. But overall, can we look and see what proportion of budget is going to the country, to the health sector? Is it 15% of total budget? No, it's 7%. So. It's 7%. It's about 7%. We are barely at half. Yeah. Yes, we are barely at half. Mm. So we are not going to improve as a nation if we are a sick nation. Right. The other issue, and, and, and you know, on that point, the other issue, uh, sorry to cut in is um, the point you both raised about the food supply, food security. Yes. And, and what yes. are the impacts of, of government's uh, COVID response on the food supply chain? Um, what are the implications for food security? Charles has a very dire warning for us, very uh, dire scenario. Um, are we you know, are we facing an imminent food shortage? And, and what needs to be done? Uh, what needs to be done? And we'll start with you, Miriam, and then uh, Charles can chime in. Okay. You see, in terms of food supply, we are not looking at the value chains. We are looking at the supply chains. It's substantially closed. Closed in the sense that we are already talking of no movement no movement uh, inter-county, inter let me say. Where is our food basket? It's in the, let me call it the old Rift Valley. The grain basket is in the Rift Valley. So for you to supply livestock or meat, a lot of meat comes from that region. A lot of maize comes from that region. It has to reach Nairobi. When you've already put the blocks. They are allowed to travel, but within certain times, which is a good thing. But remember, you are not enforcing it within the same sector. It's a different sector enforcing it. We are talking security. And from what we've seen, I think the joke that is going around is that uh, whenever these briefings are taking place, the security sector should also be there to interpret to us what they've understand, understood with those directives because they seem to get it differently. So these interactions, while they've been allowed, but in a managed manner, one is slowing down food supply, is raising prices of food supply. So by the time it reaches Nairobi or it reaches Mombasa, what is the cost? So there could be access, but the cost is prohibitive. But there's also the case where it is just not available. So those are two key issues when we are talking about uh, the supply chain. And I know there have been a lot of initiatives. And if you saw the committee that was uh, gazetted under ICT advisory, you'll find that uh, uh, there were the likes of Twigger Foods and quite a number of experts in that area. And one of the things they were trying to do and, uh, is to see how to use ICT platform to generate information to ensure that there is adequate food supply in the region and particularly where there is lockdown. So that is a very good initiative. But what percentage of market are we talking about? And in these supply chains, now that we are uh, talking about supply chains, how can we bring hawkers? Remember hawkers? are at the end of the supply chain after the bulk breaking. So you brought a whole truck from, uh, let's take Muranga with uh, potatoes. It's reached a depot. It has to be broken down to smaller trucks. And uh, you find that then there are distributors who will take it to the different destinations where other sellers are taking it to the markets or to the consumers. So when hawkers are away, we are going to also have a glut. 
where they supply, but the destination is not being reached. With the security right now, you find people are more buying things from the supermarket and not the markets because they suspect hygiene and such issues. So back to the first point I raised, have we organ uh, uh, recognized focus as a key player in the supply chain? The markets, they're the distribution points, but even with the markets, they still break it down to different sellers. Have we recognized them and the role they play? Because right now you'll find they have masks and everything, but they are so easily bundled in the police vehicles for not adhering to one thing or the other. So if we don't include the informal sector players in this supply chain, the food insecurity will rise because of high costs. And even where supply is available, there'll be a glut because it cannot reach the intended consumers. And people are also not buying because they don't have the money. Not everyone can buy in bulk for three months. Yeah. Right, right. Charles, um, Miriam's painted out um, the blockages in, in the food in the food chain. In your view, what needs to be done? I mean, you could feel free to chime in, but also we want to uh, look, you know, move towards, uh, you know, some proactive yeah. proposals. What can be done? And, and, uh, yeah. and Miriam has also pointed out this, um, I, I think one of, and then the other thing you can uh, address is who will be affected by this food shortage? Uh, David D believes the upper deck is more at risk, uh, middle class who don't have much recourse. Uh, we are here talking about informal settlements. So um, what needs to be done? And if this isn't done, who's likely to bear the brunt of it? Yeah, um, so first of all, I'll start by saying that we are not in a state of emergency. And because we're not in a state of emergency, there is absolutely no need to deploy all manner of security apparatus to block roads. What we need is uh, we are in a state of emergency response. And therefore, what government needs to do is mobilize all sectors to then go into emergency response mode, all sectors to go into emergency response mode. Why? Because there are compounding factors that is going to, that is now leading us to, into this food crisis. One is food production has been disrupted negatively. Why? Because of movement of inputs. When you restrict movement of inputs into the farms, you have already interrupted production. So things like fertilizer and seeds and all these kinds of things are not moving at the pace at which they were moving before. You know, because every manner of truck is stopped, is checked, you produce documentation. So a lot of these traders are opting not to because of the the rigmaroles, you know, the, the bureaucracy is just too much and drivers, drivers are complaining that they are being harassed left, right and center. Uh, if, you, if you go to the highways now, trucks have backed up kilometers, kilometers because of this, you know, being checked, being tested and everything else. So, so movement of inputs to where they are needed to produce food has been hampered. Secondly, because of the mantra, the new, the new normal, of stay home, stay home, stay home, people who initially had some form of income have now closed in on that income because of the uncertain future. The implication is that the remittances that were leaving the urbans to go to the rural to support in food production have been held in urban. So people like myself who are supporting our parents in the farms are now cagey with the money we spend because we're not sure of what the future holds, you know? So we're telling them, maybe just do one acre for now, leave the other acres, because we don't know how this thing is gonna go. That means that we have contributed to cutting down food production, you know, and that kind of thing. That's why I'm a big advocate that businesses need to reopen, people need to make money. That money was serving several purposes, including supporting food production in the farms, you know? 
because of the remittances and leasing of the farms and this kind of thing. So people are, people are holding on to their money now and not using it. And what we're going to see in the near future is there was no food produced and therefore there's no food to be, to be traded. Now, the other bit, of course, is to understand something very, very critical, Shiro, that 98% of food retail in Kenya is through the informal trade. 98%, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables, whether it's foods, 98% of food retail in Kenya is through the informal trade. The most affected sector in Kenya today is informal trade. Informal trade is not usually licensed. So when you tell people who have been supplying meat or vegetables that you must, the truck driver must have a letter saying where it's coming from, where it's going, they don't have the letters. These people, the only documentation they have is a small permit here and there somewhere behind the show. So they don't have properly registered business names with letterheads and letters and now give every driver and every small pickup carrying food to to, to whichever the destination. What they have done, therefore, is they have opted not to. So because of this, you'll be arrested, you'll be doing all these things. So we'd rather then not, not, not transport. What it has, the implication is that 98% of that retail system has been closed out. What we need to do is appeal to government to see sense in understanding what they have not cared to understand before on the food system in this country, you know? And that food system is not supermarkets and, and registered shops. Food system is every 98% outside of supermarkets. You know, that is the Kenya's, Kenya's food system. Food system is not the 5% that is exported. It is the 95% that is not exported, that is produced and consumed locally here, which the government has no radar over. So when the government talks about food safety, they're talking about the 5% that gets exported. They have no clue how the 95% is produced and sold in this country. And that is what feeds Kenyans. So they need to go back quickly take a step back, allow for conversation. We must allow for conversation by everyone affected and say, look, how best can we protect the food system? Who is involved with the food system? The COVID-19 presents the government with a critical opportunity to understand the country for once. Just call different people in different rooms or, or have these calls like this and just say, how are you affected in your space? What has been happening before? How are you affected now? What can be done differently? It doesn't take magic or a miracle. It's a few calls. In the past one month since this thing broke out, they could have come up with sound solutions now. If they, if they had an idea how to do it. But because they did have, so we, we are faced with this thing and they're not listening to solutions. They're not listening to proposals. For example, let me, let, me, let me give an example, Shiro. Government has no clue how many Kenyan livelihoods are supported by NGOs. And yet for decades, NGOs have played the role of government in supporting the livelihoods of poor Kenyans. Since this COVID broke out, have you heard anywhere where they have called on NGOs? and say, we want ideas from NGOs, we want to understand how, you're, how are you affected, how are the, the populations you've been working with affected in terms of this, how can we rope you in, in terms of livelihood support. Nobody has reached out to NGOs. As a matter of fact, they go about like NGOs don't exist. And yet, millions, millions of Kenyan livelihoods have depended on interventions by NGOs whether they're CBOs at the grassroots level, working with households on or the improvement of livelihoods, kitchen gardens, food production, you know, these kinds of things, improve farming practices. NGOs who, who basically carry millions of Kenyans have been put aside, not being consulted, not being brought in in terms of drivers of this new intervention, you know, and, and how to protect the food system at all. So, so none of that is, is happening and, 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 and government seems to not have a clue except 
roll out security people on the on the road on the roadblocks, have them stop everybody else, beat those who can't speak for themselves. You know, right? It's right. It's, it's baffling. So, so government isn't isn't listening, isn't picking the knowledge um, that that uh, stakeholders have and can add to the process. Um, as we get to the end, I have um, maybe one last question. We're hearing a lot about the post-COVID. When we look at informal trade, when we look at the food security, um, can we begin talking about post-COVID? Um, and what do those scenarios look like? And, and maybe we can pay a, a little bit of attention to um, in, informal settlements. Um, there seems, there's, is it right to say there's a strong correlation between informal trade and informal settlements? And, and uh, when we're talking about uh, food security, um, is, is that um, you know, a fair assumption? And, and how, how do we deal with that? And how do we look at, can, is it too ready to start talking post-COVID? Yeah, because you know, you're hearing now with government, they're almost moving to that direction. Uh, yet this conversation lends us to believe that they haven't even really begun the response. Um, the response has been mismanaged. So just to clarify on, on what I'm asking, because I think there are two questions in there. One is about um, just tying up that issue about informal settlements and this food security issue. And then can we begin talking about post-COVID? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think there's, there's reason to believe that um, a lot of informal trade revolves around informal settlements. Um, and there's, and then there's, uh, there's data to show that, of course, uh, because most of the, the uh, middle income, high income uh, settlements uh, are, uh, are built around formal structures like supermarkets with easy access. Uh, which, which you, you barely find in the informal settlements. And therefore, if, if there were to be uh, any form of food insecurity, it, it will affect the informal settlements more. Uh, one, because they are hit by what um, Dr. Mediam mentioned earlier, uh, disruptions in supply chains. Uh, formal supermarkets, uh, in the absence of local supply, they will import. And the, and the, and the, and the, the borders should be opened quickly for them to import because the middle class and the upper class need the food. Uh, but the, the informal settlements will rely on local production. And if, in the absence of that, uh, you know, they're on, they're on their own. Now, what needs to happen quickly is to reorganize the food supply, food production and supply, especially targeting the most hit, the informal. We must ask the question, even if you give them the conditional cash transfer, now they're saying they're gonna give it at a thousand bob per week, but there's nothing to buy with it. Uh, what are they gonna use the money for? So, so on the one hand, while the, while the treasury is talking about releasing the money, the Ministry of Agriculture should be taking the next microphone and saying, look, here's how we're organizing food supply and distribution so that this money can be used here. The Ministry of Trade should take the next microphone to say, look, here's how we are facilitating alternative trade mechanisms. And we're engaging with the Ministry of Internal Security to open up so that if anybody says, here is food I'm transporting, let them pass. No, no need for many paperwork. It, you check the truck, are they carrying vegetables? Let them pass. It doesn't matter where, where the vegetable is coming from, where it's going. It is vegetables, it is being carried, it is headed in a particular direction, let the vegetables pass. You know, because it doesn't make sense to ask a truck driver carrying food, where are you coming from, where are you going? I mean, clearly. So, but because, because there's a lack of coordination in ministries, where if, you, if you're treasury and you're, re, you're announcing release of funds in billions to poor households, the person standing next to you should be Ministry of Agriculture, saying, here's how we're going to make sure that food is available to be bought by this money. Trade is standing next to them saying, here's how we're going to make sure that this food is transported with ease. We have our officers at every roadblock to ensure that they, they quickly check 
if it is food, let it go. If it is food, let it go. You know, uh, we have our officers on the ground ensuring if farmers need seeds, where are seeds coming from? Can we allow seeds to pass quickly? Uh, these kinds of things, can we allow fertilizer to pass quickly? Right. Without this coordinated effort, we are, we are, we are wasting time with these press briefings. So, uh, right, so there's lack of coordination. Improve productivity, link the supply chains, because you know information is power. So I think the IT, linking IT and informal sector would be very important. What role can the informal sector play in having a voice at the national and county level beyond the boardroom? I'm talking about practicalities. So that is where I would start. And my conviction is that we have very innovative Kenyans who can give solutions to some of these things. But someone who's, for me, given the kind of work I do, that's the advice I, I would give.